The 2019 film Jojo Rabbit takes place in Germany during World War II. The movie's protagonist is a German boy whose imaginary friend is a goofy Adolf Hitler. In the movie, the boy discovers that his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their apartment, and this discovery forces him to come to terms with the blind nationalism he has believed in for what it seems his entire life. The movie is funny, even when tackling such a heavy topic, but it is also heartwarming and heartbreaking. The movie's genre play, as it seamlessly drifts between comedy and drama, makes it a unique one, something rarely seen when dealing with the atrocities of the Holocaust. For the mental health section of this episode, Brandon talks about the psychology of nationalism. He gives us a brief overview as to why people turn to nationalism during times of distress and makes parallels between Germany after World War I and the United States after 9-11. Spoilers! Americans are not impervious to nationalism. Shocking, I know, but something that definitely bears repeating. I go in a completely different direction, away from nationalism, and explore the psychology of having an imaginary friend, which, as it turns out, is a completely normal part of growing up, just like not having one is completely normal too. Which reminds me, if any of you had an imaginary friend, please write us by going to peculiarpicture.show or emailing us at peculiarpictureshow at gmail.com. Be sure to describe everything about your imaginary friend. What was it like? Did you physically see and hear your imaginary friend? I have so many questions about imaginary friends, all of which you will hear and more on this next episode of Peculiar Picture Show. Welcome to Peculiar Picture Show, the podcast that talks about movies, maladies, and mental health. I am one of your hosts. I am Brandon Gregory. And I am another one of your hosts, Maria Malazzo. And today we're discussing the 2019 film Jojo Rabbit, um, directed by Taika Waititi. I think I'm saying his I, I think that's right. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, and this movie was, um, uh, it won Best Adapted Screenplay in the Academy yeah. Awards. Um, and it was nominated for a bunch of other things, including... Uh, Scarlett Johansson was nominated for Best Actress Actress right. in a Supporting Role, but she was also nominated for Best Actress in a in a role for Marriage Story that same year. Oh, she was a double nomination. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um lo- looking through some of the other awards. She actually did win the Best Supporting Actress for a lot of the other awards outside of the Oscars. Um, so she she yeah. did win some awards for this role. And this film is a strange one because it's kind of a a comedy drama about Nazis, um, which is, I think, hard. Um, uh, like it's a, it's a hard weird line combination. To walk. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It is a is definitely a hard line to walk in. It was. Um. A, and Taika Waititi is from New Zealand, and uh-huh. um, he is, I think, part um indigenous Ma- Maori. From the more yeah, he's, he's half um, indigenous and half Jewish, actually. Yeah, yeah. and he so. also plays Adolf Hitler in this film, right. which is Adolf Hitler is the imaginary friend of the main boy. So we have uh-huh. this boy. It's in the World War Two, during World War Two in Germany. He's part of the Hitler Youth, and his imaginary friend is Hitler, and that's that that that's kind of the extent of that. Uh-huh. Um, 
I I thought it was interesting because I read somewhere that um, he was inspired to make this film after reading a statistic that a bunch of Americans didn't had never heard of Auschwitz. And I was like, <sighs> yeah, what? So I was reading. So I had yeah. to look up the statistic <laughs> because I was like, what is going on? It is. um of respondents had never heard of Auschwitz and 66% of millennials could not come up with the correct response about what that was. And which is just, which I think it struck him because, you know, the whole mentality about we're never going to forget, forget this when this happens, like 9-11 forgetting. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and, and now people are forgetting. So, and I always think it's crazy when people have never heard of things like that. Um, you know, when you do those, like, uh, Conan O'Brien or something used to do go out on the streets and like ask random people like you <laughs> yeah. know math questions uh-huh. or like who the first president of the United States was and nobody know like that that really bugs me like watching people not know some of that shit not to even be able to get get guess on some <laughs> level really just bothers me and so I think that's why uh-huh. when I, I I read that I was like seriously like it was the 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 major concentration camp um during that time um yeah and i and there's I, it just so many other lessons from that time have been forgotten since then especially in america mm-hmm. um because like <laughs> you, you could bet germany has not forgotten about this like they take that very seriously but america is kind of proving right now that it is not really great at learning from history um yeah. and so yeah. there's that and so i i was um actually surprised by two things one this is based on a book imaginary hitler is not in the book right so that was surprising it's um mm-hmm. and so that's completely taika Waititi's um in- invention but second is um actually when he was doing his research into what how germany actually was during the war like it was such a tragic time that every time Germany during World War II is portrayed. It's like dark and dreary. They use muted colors. And that's not at all like how Germany actually was during the war. Like how Germany actually was during the war is actually much closer to what we see in this film. There's, you know, bright colors. Everybody's happy. Everybody's cheery, even though they, they on some level, they know things are crumbling. Um, uh, people were very much keeping up with the latest fashions. Um, and so mm-hmm. this is actually probably a more accurate depiction of what Germany was actually like during that time than many mm. other <laughs> World War II films, which is ironic to say the least, because it's such an over-the-top tone. I wouldn't have thought that, but... Right. That was just kind of the nationalism that was going on then was we are the greatest country. We are the greatest people. <laughs> Everything yeah. is fantastic. Um, like right until they like just completely got defeated at the end there. Um, and Sounds so, a little familiar, Brandon. Yes. Yeah. Well, we are going to get into that. Yeah. So um, it's like. I, I, but um, also, Taika Waititi said he just refused to do any sort of research into Adolf Hitler. And he actually did say, I want this to be as inaccurate as possible because he's a fucking cunt, is what he said. Exactly. Um, so, <laughs> Fuck that man. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, and so, like, he just intentionally did no research into Hitler just to make it as ridiculous as possible. Um, as a, a fuck you to the guy, as a Jewish guy. So. Um, yeah, so that was interesting to me. And this, this was your first time seeing this, right? Right. Okay. So, uh, I mean, it sounds like you liked it. 
Yes. Yes. I, I liked it. And I know when I had first heard about it, I remember having that same kind of reaction, like, what? Like, there's an imaginary. Are they really? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I meant to see it, you know, when it first when it first came out. And I just I just never did. And um, and now I'm finally seeing it. So, um, yeah. Um, and this was not your first time. You've seen this before, right? I saw it in theaters. Um, it's oh, okay. one of those, like, probably one of the Latin. Yeah, definitely one of the last movies I saw before they shut everything down for the pandemic. <laughs> it was just mm-hmm. like weeks before they shut everything down. And so I went with my wife and son. And it's very rare that all three of us will love the same movie. But we oh. all love this movie. Um, and so, yeah, when I watched this last time for this podcast, my wife um, like pretty much demanded to watch it with me because she loves this movie. And so I bought it on Amazon because I know we'll be rewatching it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we, we love this film. It was I thought very well done. And actually, um, Taika Waititi wrote this before what we do in the shadows. So it even predates that the screenplay does. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, this, this goes back to, I think 2011 or something like that. So, you like about this film so i i like that it plays with genre and like it's a comedy drama you know we have this protagonist like i said is a hitler youth nazi kid whose imaginary friend is adolf hitler (laughs) and like not necessarily in a way where hitler is evil you know he's his friend (laughs) you know um Mm -hmm. well i mean he's just kind of a personification of the kid um and it's um it's kind it was just a fresh take on this holocaust thing i mean i don't, I don't want to say that. i don't i don't think i mean it like that um but like no, I, I know it, what you mean though it's like yeah. this has never been portrayed like this right um right. and we get to see the nationalism for what it was mm-hmm. so yes. yeah. yeah it's definitely like the first time you know i i think it's i think part of why maybe people don't didn't like this film if there are people who don't like this film because I like this film is the way that it uses humor for such a serious thing and like I'm under the whole um, impression that um, it's never too soon in all situations everywhere all time at any time it is never too soon to make fun of something so like I I really enjoyed that um, that aspect of um, of bringing satire into into this. And uh-huh. um, although it is a comedy and it has a lot of humor and, you know, Hitler's portrayed as goofy and we all love that um, and we like to, you know, dig on it. I think it's still very much heartbreaking and heartwarming. Um, yeah. You know, the film uses um, the mother's shoes. Um, like we always see her shoes in a lot of the right. shots. One of the first as, things we It shows we you the shoes, but it doesn't really let you know. It doesn't make a point of letting you know that is showing right. you the shoes. And so that was such right. a big thing. It, I when thought it, it was yeah. so beautifully done. I, I remember yeah. f- 
when I first noticed the shoes in one of the scenes when she was wearing them. And I was like, oh, my God, I love those shoes. Like, they wanted those shoes. <laughs> like, they were cool yeah. shoes. Um, and, um, and then that's the how we finally see her when she uh-huh. is um, when, when she's murdered, um, a victim of the war. We don't know what happened to her exactly. Um, Jojo doesn't know. Um, he just sees her hanging and he notices it by her shoes and her outfit. And, um, and it could be that they were, she was found to be distributing propaganda. I, they don't. Well, I I think they caught Elsa. Um, they, because she got the date of birth wrong from the passport. I thought they didn't catch her. So I was under the impression that she, she got away with it because the guy, noticed it on the passport but he protected her and you see that later when he protects him jojo and he's like go run away this is is you know yeah he calls him names like i thought it was just maybe she got caught with the propaganda because no one comes to try to take elsa away and kill they don't kill her or take him away so well, that's a good point yeah he could have been protecting him i don't know so right um, and yeah. you know you can see her like distributing the propaganda so i wonder if they just like catch her i have no idea it's not yeah. really you know it's not really stated in there um but we do know that she's a victim of the war and she was caught and that yes. she was helping, you know, because she was distributing the propaganda material and she was also hiding um, a Jewish person in her in her wall. Um, so so it could be anything. And uh, the movie, you know, really, even though it has that humor and it's a satire and it has that element, it also is ve- it's still very true to the time when there these horrible things were going on. And so I really mm-hmm. appreciated that about the film. And I really like the art direction. Um, like you said, a lot of the times when the people are portraying World War II and it's dark and dreary, and this was a very bright colored film and there was a lot of art direction going on. Um, I think I was um, reading about some of his um, direction and what their apartment should look like. It should be very a very safe place and all that kind of stuff. And I thought it was uh-huh. very well thought of and a lot of time and effort was put into it and it was visually appealing to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I really like the acting in it. Like, I like the goofy Hitler. Um, Taika Waititi actually wasn't supposed to play Hitler, I think. Um, I was reading that he wasn't going to, and someone said, I would make the film if you play Hitler or something. I don't know if that was a joke by him, but it wasn't something that was supposed to happen in the beginning. Uh Um, But I think he does a really good job. And um, and, and it's goofy, and I like goofy Hitler. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I like Tarantino's dumbass Hitler, too, and, um, you know, and Glorious Bastards. (laughs) Yeah, I like Like, to hate Hitler. (laughs) I mean, it's disrespectful to Hitler, of course, but I don't think it's disrespectful to the victims here, you know? So that's, yeah, just backing you up here. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think it's okay to be wildly entertained by this goofball Hitler because it it makes an ass out of him, you know? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Um, So I I really enjoyed those aspects of the film. Um, My first time around, I only I've only seen it once. What about you? What did you did you like about it? Um, they like when I first heard about this film, I was worried. I will admit, I was very worried. <laughs> Somebody's like, "Hey, I got an idea. Let's make a comedy about Hitler." Uh, but this totally worked. Um, is the yeah. thing because it was so, and like because it was made by a Jewish man, I think is the big part of that. Um, that this like 
it it wasn't necessarily like Germans are the worst people on the earth, but it was that German nationalism was one of the worst things on the earth. And Adolf Hitler is just kind of an enabler of the the mm-hmm. nationalism that we're seeing here. And so, like, it, it just it seems like even though it was so over the top, it seemed so honest in his portrayal. Um, and you just you never really see that. It's um, like one one of the other. Um, movies I've seen uh, with a portrayal of Germany in World War II is actually a German film about um, like one of the, one of the U-boat teams, and it's like it does not shy away from saying like the, we have these kids that are just pumped full of propaganda and sent off to die for their country, and they're so proud to do it, and they don't have any reason to be proud to do it. Like that's the message of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's it's dark, it's dreary, it's depressing, and that's not at all what Germany was like at that time and so it's like it was just such an interesting thing to see and then like the humor mixed with the dramatic elements i think also worked really well like the scene when we find out that um you know his mom was hanging there just hit like a ton of bricks and watching it the second time through when you know it's coming is even harder because Mm -hmm. like you know it's coming so like the dramatic elements and the the natural relationship that built up between um jo- Jojo and Elsa I thought was it, it just seemed natural um yeah. and then also like I I really appreciated um the strong female characters like I mean Scarlett Johansson's character they didn't feel a need to give her any sort of a romantic mm-hmm. plot or anything like that and then Elsa like I mean I've said this before bears repeating like strong female characters are not perfect characters they are characters who have flaws and they're allowed to be great in spite of their flaws and so they didn't portray Elsa as this like perfect little angel like she I mean she she had some flaws she you know it's you know I, I don't blame her for any of that because she's a teenage girl you know going through unspeakable horror at that time she's scared mm-hmm. out of her mind but they, they let her be a real character and not just this little, you know, saintly angel, you know, beyond any sort of, you know, ill manner of anything, you know? So it's, um, they, they let her have human reactions to these things that were going on. And I really appreciated that. Was there anything you did not like about this film? Nothing. I couldn't really think of anything that mm-hmm. I disliked. Um, like, like I said, I think people disliked it maybe because it's a satire and they don't think that sort of thing should be funny or made fun of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I guess it's still too soon for some people. Um, to me, comedy is the ultimate fuck you to things like nationalism Mm -hmm. and racism and sexism like i'm always gonna think that there's really nothing that um you know my reaction when i go through any kind of trauma or any kind of um when i was facing brain surgery 
Mm -hmm. I there was no other way to do it other than to basically be funny for me um, and to deal with it that way. I mean, I remember getting um, diagnosed with the brain tumor and not knowing if it was cancer or not. And I had asked my regular doctor um, and I had the whole weekend until I had the um, appointment with the neurosurgeon. So I had no idea what was going on. I had three days where I basically thought I had brain cancer and Mm -hmm. I um, asked for Xanax or something. And I remember getting it filled at the Walgreens and doing this whole bit at the Walgreens because I love to do bits (laughs) about how I was forgetting things and I would just say it so nonchalantly like it's okay I have a brain tumor and then they would look at me and I'd be like no 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 I do and like I just carry (laughs) it forward and it's funny to me and it (laughs) provides some kind of comfort to me um I don't think I would be able to get through that if I didn't make fun of it if I didn't talk about it in a way that um wasn't so serious and wasn't so and and so I you know the holocaust uh, we know Maria and her history with the Holocaust. I am so yeah. deeply affected by that. It was the first thing I think I learned when I was younger. Not that that was the only bad thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, but it was just the first thing that for some reason I've glommed onto. Um, and I'm still like the humor in it. And, um, and mm-hmm. I still think that it works for me. It helps me heal. And it, um, and it's a way for me to move forward and it's not too soon. So maybe that's why people don't like it. I don't know. I I I don't I don't tech I didn't technically see anything wrong with the film. I didn't um you know it's very I, yeah, hard for either. me to come up um with something. Yeah, did you have anything for disliking? <laughs> Um, well, just going back to what you said real quick, I think anybody who has survived any sort of trauma knows the value of humor in mm-hmm. dealing with that. And so, like, you know, when I'm around other people with serious mental illness, like, we joke about suicide. Yeah. And, like, to a neurotypical person, Sorry. that is just, like, insane. Like, hey, I'm suicidal again. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, like, <laughs> yeah. it just blows people's My minds. My mom doesn't like that it, we do but that. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's... <laughs> Like you just you need humor to get through these things. And I will also say this is actually not the first respectful satire about Adolf Hitler, because Mm -hmm. Mel Brooks, another Jewish man, made the producers um, back in the 1960s, Mm -hmm. springtime for Hitler. Hitler. And Mm -hmm. like, I think that is also a brilliant and respectful movie. And I think Charlie Um, Chaplin did, too. Didn't Charlie Chaplin he, make fun of Hitler? Yeah, yes, he did. Um, mm-hmm. The Great Dictator. Yes, um, and then he did it because he realized he looked like Hitler. But here's yes. the funny thing: <laughs> just a quick, a quick aside yes. about Charlie Chaplin and the Great Dictator. Mm-hmm. When he made the film, World War II had not started. They had no idea the atrocities that were going on, and oh, so he mm. was just making fun of a political figure that he thought was mm. kind of funny. Mm. But then, by the time the okay. movie came out. World War II had started, and that became mm. one of the first propaganda films in America for the war, completely unintentionally. Wow. <laughs> so, oh, thanks um, for that aside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, um, and uh, yeah, uh, The Great Dictator, very funny movie, actually, and it holds up today. But, and The Producers, also an amazing movie, the 1960s version. That's my, mm-hmm. like, my favorite Mel Brooks film, and like, yeah, you know, some pretty good films. So, like uh, apparently making fun of Hitler actually is, you know, a pretty successful topic when it's done well and respectfully. Right. And I think it was here. And so like, I, I think like you, I didn't really see much that I didn't like it. Like 
I, if I were to take, take a guess as to why people didn't like this movie, it might be that a lot of people don't consider comedy to be high art. Um, a lot of people Such don't a consider, shame. yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't consider satire to be like a true art form. And it's like, right. I mean, how often do you see a comedy win the, the award for best picture? Like almost never, um, because it's just assumed that drama is where the serious yeah. performances mm-hmm. are. And so, um, I mean, this did win best screenplay not only for the Oscars but for many other places. And so it got some recognition, um, but. Like there, there may be some people who were offended. I don't know. I haven't really done the research, but my guess would be there were a lot of people that just weren't impressed with it simply because it was a comedy. This is Stephanie and Tux <laughs> from the podcast Beyond Reproach, a show about political scandals from American history. But it's fun, we swear. The idea behind our show is that politicians and government officials are meant to be public servants. And their behavior should be beyond reproach. But if history has taught us anything, it's that a lot of politicians are total scumbags. So we decided to do a show where we drink period-appropriate historic cocktails while exploring some of the government scandals and shitty politicians of America's past. We are not historians. We're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. America's history is juicy. We just add gin. Uh, so, Maria, what do you think this film has to say about mental health? So this is the first film I had to go back in what we've done so far. And I think it's the first film that we've done that's really takes place during World War II. Um, the first one that kind of focuses on the Holocaust and like mm-hmm. the genocide of an entire race of people um, and what Hitler did. And I know we've talked about dehumanization before, particularly with enslaved people during our systemic racism episodes. And I, I think it's fair to assume that the, like similar trauma experiences are uh, occurred to people who are dehumanized by a group um, and, mm-hmm. you know, made to feel less than inferior, broken, like the whole psychology, psychological stress of that. Um, I didn't really, that being said, I didn't really get into that um, for this section. What really struck me was child psychology and having an imaginary friend. And the reason mm. why this really struck me is because I, I've never had an imaginary friend. Brandon, I have, have not you either. Had? No, okay. I've never have. Never and ever. I, it, it just never occurred to me to do. Like, I was a very cynical kid. I never believed in Santa Claus. Yeah, I was like, very cynical too. I was yeah. very serious. I was told that mm-hmm. I was a very serious, literal kid. Me too. <laughs> I'm yeah. so so much fun to be around. Um, <laughs> and rem- remember the movie growing up drop dead Fred. And it was about imaginary friends oh, with Phoebe yeah. Cates. And I just like, I'm like, do people actually have, is this a thing? Do people actually yeah. have imer- imaginary friends? I, Cause I've never had one. I've never, ever, ever seen anything hallucinated or, or seen anything that I couldn't explain unless I was on LSD or acid or something. So, so like mm-hmm. I, it just blows my mind that there are people who physically see an imaginary friend, like, you know, like my questions are do you physically see them or do you know that they're imaginary do you, there's i had a bunch of things that i i just you know and and to our listeners if you've ever had an imaginary friend please write in and tell me what the experience is like because that's never happened to me but when i was looking 
into like the psychology of it, it's actually hmm. pretty normal. According to the psychologist, uh, having an imaginary friend or not having one is perfectly normal. Um, according to an article in Psychology Today, about 37% of children by the age of seven um, hmm. d- start creating an invisible friend. Like a lot of people do imaginary play. I remember imaginary play, definitely. I remember pretending mm-hmm. like I was I was in love with the monkeys. When I was six years old, I loved Davy Jones. And I remember pretending like, you know, I got, got to see them and I went uh-huh. to do things. And like, so like that pretend, For a second definitely. there, I totally forgot there was a band called the monkeys. I was trying to figure out where you were going with that. So. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't know. Listeners who don't know, there was a band called the Monkees. So okay. <laughs> I'm not even sure if it was really a band or just an actors made to be a band that turned into a band. Anyway, look up yeah. the monkeys. If you haven't heard of, you know, Auschwitz or the Monkeys, then you need to seriously re-examine your life. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but anyway, those two are the same. They're the same, exactly the <laughs> yes. same on the same level. Um, but I used to do imaginary play in that way, but I've never, I've never actually like thought someone, um, was there and was an imaginary friend like they do in these movies when I see these imaginary friends. So I'm very interested in like, I, I thought maybe we were going to have one so you could tell me what it was like. Um, but I was reading this article and why do children invent them? Because that's my first question, right? Mm-hmm. Is like, why did I not have an imaginary friend? And they really don't 100% know. Like they think people can say, oh, maybe if you have an imaginary friend, you're lonely or you have social problems, but actually research doesn't support any of this. In fact, um, compared to those who don't create them, children with imaginary companions tend to be less shy, engage more in laughing and smiling with peers, and do better at tasks involving imaginary imagining how someone else might think. So maybe that goes to it because, um, Brandon, you said you were very serious and <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I I was very serious and very introverted. Yeah, Um, I was very, very introverted as well. I am like not like that anymore. But when I was younger, it was like pulling teeth to get me to talk. Um, (laughs) And um, it says oldest children, only children and children who don't, don't watch much television are more likely to create an imaginary friend. Hmm. And so, so I wonder what the trends are, like the imaginary friends back, you know, 50 years ago when television wasn't really like it was today and the internet, you know, I wonder if there's any trends like a it decrease. I have no idea. Um, and it's not really evidence that a child is in trouble if they have imaginary friends. So it's it, yeah. completely normal. It can be a source of com- um, comfort for a child. Um, it can help them ho- cope with traumatic experiences. And so all of that stuff I read is just perfectly normal. And so I found out through this and the research that I am not a freak um, for the most part uh, because having... I didn't have one. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Jojo is not a freak because he did have one who happened to be Hitler. Um but that this is a perfectly normal thing that happens. And um, and I'm a little bit I'm a little bit smarter because of it, because I looked that up. Yeah. So there we go. That, that I was feel, my I feel a little contrib- smarter, too, now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that was my contribution to the mental health edition of this episode. What, what about you? 
<laughs> oh gosh, I actually like I started looking into the psychology of nationalism because, yeah. like, that is yes, we're getting there, we're going there. I hate so it. I hate that. Yes, so yeah, we're definitely going there. So there was an article from the Atlantic called "The Everyday Psychology of Nationalism," and I we, we could post a link to this on our website. And you know, initially, it, I mean, it went through the psychology of nationalism, and it was actually it was not talking about America; it was talking about South Korea. Mm. Um, and so it was, a, you know, a little, I think, unbiased um, or more unbiased than it would be if it was about America in current political climates. Um, and so, like, initially, not very surprising, like, you know, natural childhood development moves from, you know, meeting your own psychological needs to meeting psychological needs through the group you associate with. Um, and the needs to belong and have self-esteem are basic human needs. And, of course, one of the easiest way to meet these needs is to build yourself up or to build the group you associate up. Um, you associate with up. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to think of yourself as better than another group Mm -hmm. or another person. And so these are just easy ways to meet those basic emotional needs. And I mean, we see this in other groups too. Like um, many Christians will often believe they're morally superior to others. Many men will believe they are more well-suited to the workplace than women. Um, But then we got into some interesting things in this article. So some psychologists theorize that the nation's military might is a big motivator in nationalism. And Mm so you talk about current events, like how the American military is just growing out of, you know, out of control is um, both, both a cause and as, um, and effects of nationalism where we want to have more faith in our country and the bigger and the stronger our military gets, the more nationalism we have. Um, and then adding to that, if a nation feels a threat from another nation, that trust in the military just intensifies and the nationalism can grow. Um, and so like if uh, America, you know, for a long time did not have a lot of natural predators until 9-11. And so we're going to get mm-hmm. into that in just a bit here. I was just going to yeah. say 9-11, so, which is coming yeah. up soon, actually, yes, if you're keeping track soon. of what that calendar is. But, yes. And Sorry. so I'm actually, I'm going to go back into some uh, Kansas politics here. Like uh, Kansas is traditionally a red state, but we have a Democratic governor named Laura Kelly, who on Twitter said, some good news out of Wichita, the numbers don't lie, masks work. I know we can continue working together as Kansans to contain the spread of COVID-19 and keep our economy and our schools open. And so I immediately, was, I was like, I've got to check the comments on this. Um, and so <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's not surprisingly, yourself. you know, there are some people who are like, oh, you you just don't understand science because masks don't do anything and COVID is wrong. And, uh, you know, there are some people saying, thank you for doing this. You know, this means a lot. Um, the one reply that got my attention was somebody who simply said, what if you and your supporters aren't the good guys? And that that's mm. it. That was the comment. Um, and so, like, there there's this huge understanding of just the good guys and the bad guys. And so um, I, I found another article. It's called The Trump Effect. New study connects white American intolerance and support for authoritarianism. And this one is from NBC News. And this one was somewhat shocking to me because they found that in white Americans, um, particularly those who are intolerant, the way they measure that is those who do not want to live in a neighborhood with people of other races. Um, so specifically with those Americans, um, they they currently have a higher support for authoritarian rule. Uh, but what that meant was when all intolerant white people feared democracy may benefit people other than them, they abandoned their commitment to democracy. Uh, yeah. And so that was like 
just freakishly scary. And so here's a direct quote from the article. It says, based on surveys from the United States, the authors found that white people who did not want to have immigrants or people of different races living next door to them were more likely to be supportive of authoritarianism. For instance, people who said they did not want to live next door to immigrants or to people of another race were more supportive of the idea of military rule or a strongman type leader who could ignore legislatures and election results. And that's, terrifying right now especially as we're going into election results um and so i mean white supremacy and nationalism and those two so often go hand in hand Mm -hmm. they they just often travel under the guise of you know the the good guys standing up against the bad guys and that's how they frame it is we're the good guys and we have to stop the bad guys and so that humanization yeah yes that homeowner wasn't shooting an unarmed black man on the street he was standing his ground against Mm -hmm. a bad guy um and this is so ingrained in our culture, like even as far back as like 1971, the film Dirty Harry came out in 1971. And this was his primary message was that bad guys don't deserve human rights and we can't let the law get in the way of punishing bad guys. Um and even more recently, and like this was kind of a shock to me when somebody pointed it out on Twitter, and unfortunately, I don't know who that is. But if you look at the recent Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, like if you look at Batman through the years, like, you know, initially he was like the world's greatest detective and then he had all these gadgets. But in the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, Batman's not a detective. He wasn't really all that much better equipped than a police and riot gear. So in that trilogy, Batman's superpower was that he could ignore human rights. He could do things that it was illegal <laughs> oh for God. the police to do so he was a rich white man who could do illegal things to punish the people he didn't like and you know if there's anything more american than that like i don't know um so i mean this narrative (laughs) of the good guys fighting the bad guys has been such a central part of our culture for decades maybe even since the country's inceptions that there are the good guys and the bad guys and i mean now in this era of nationalism like it's just it's it's growing out of control and so you know this Every form of punching down from white supremacy to misogyny to extreme misogynism or extreme nationalism is focused on this idea of fighting the bad guys, that there are some guys out there that just don't deserve human rights. Um, and we see this all the time in the news. We see white shooters are described as disturbed loners and black shooting victims are described as dangerous hoodlums. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, this is just everywhere. And so going back to Jojo Rabbit, like, let's take a look at the historical context here. Germany had just lost World War One and was feeling immensely threatened by their Mm -hmm. neighboring countries because they had just gotten their asses kicked in World War One. And so they they felt some fear from other neighboring countries. And so they put their faith in the military and the nationalism grew. They felt defeated. So they felt an emotional need to build themselves up um, to meet that um, emotional need of self-esteem. So Hitler came along and what he did is he just met the emotional needs of Germany at that time. And so it's like it's not like Hitler led the country astray. Germany like Mm -hmm. enabled Hitler basically and nationalism spread quickly. And so looking for parallels today, (laughs) I know, Maria, you and I are old enough now to realize how different the world is now after 9-11. And so, like I said, like America did not have a lot of natural predators, so to speak. I mean, are we we afraid of of Mexico invading us? Are we afraid of Canada invading us? Like, no, we thought we were invincible. Um, And then, you know, we all, you know, 
Americans just have this reputation of bragging about our track record in war is because we're not very old as a nation. We haven't had a chance to lose a lot of wars. Um, and so, but after 9-11 happened, all of a sudden we started feeling threatened by other countries and we started feeling defeated, much like Germany. And so nationalism became a way of soothing those wounds of nationalism has been on the rise ever since because it met the emotional needs of so many yeah. Americans who were hurting. And so, I mean, a lot of people are blaming Trump, but the problem is that uh, the problem is that Trump is meeting the emotional needs of so many Americans right now. And apparently so much so that they're willing to give up on democracy in order to, to soothe those wounds. And so America is, is just, it's not dealing with this pain in a healthy matter. It's like treating depression with alcohol. And now we have roughly half the country that's drunk on nationalism. Mm. Yeah. What, what struck me when you were talking about that was the whole, um, if they feel like democracy is going to benefit someone other than them or the people that they don't want it to benefit or something like that, mm -hmm. then they go towards authoritarianism, which is so yeah. weird because if you <laughs> ask any one of them, I guarantee the first, if you say, what's so great about America, what's the first thing they're going to say? It's going to be their oh, freedom. freedom. But freedom. it's freedom for me. It's freedom, freedom yeah. of speech, freedom of blah, blah, blah. Guess what you but don't have an authoritarian. Like yeah. Right. <laughs> Guess what you don't have an authoritarian government. It's fucking freedom, you assholes. Like, come on. Right. Like, um, So I thought but, that was yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it's just not it's for the right people. It's classic projection because mm -hmm. I, like these people are terrified that white people will become the minority and then they will be oppressed because that's what they do. They're the major majority and they oppress others. That's what they feel the majority will do. And so they're projecting their feelings. They're like, when we are no longer the majority, we will be oppressed. We will be the victims of racism. We will be the victims of, you know, these discriminatory laws um, just because that's what they know how to do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's yeah. like that's not to give an excuse to any any racist or blind nationalist who is harming people. But like that is where they're coming from. Yeah, it's again this, you know, how I am. I'm so adamant about this whole blind nationalism. When you think you're the greatest and you're the best, it is trouble. It's trouble. You need humility. Like you can't be the greatest and the best. Like it does not work that way. It's just, mm -hmm. it always breeds trouble. And I do, you know, you said, you know, we're old enough to know what it was like before 9 11. And, you know, I was 21 or I was about to be, or I just turned 21 during mm -hmm. 9 11. And I was in community college. And I remember when that happened and how we all, Oh, first of all, we were glued to the television for like weeks. Yeah. Like that, I, I that I distinctly remember always looking at the news for like who knows how long after that. Um, but we started getting all of our stuff taken away, like the Patriot Patriot Act. That was when the whole airport, all that stuff changed in the airport. You couldn't be here, you couldn't be there. I remember traveling in October. I was doing an honors conference to Chicago or something, and it was for with school, and we had a bunch of us, and I got pulled over or whatever uh, to be, like, frisked and, like, for them to really go into my suitcase. So it was me, and it was all the other people who had different-sounding names or names that were not normal American names. <sighs> um, yeah. And the also the girl who wore the hijab, she was Muslim. She got pulled. Like, <sighs> of course. It was, it was yeah. a black girl. It was, like, uh -huh. it was everyone that was not a white 
person got right. searched during this, you know, and we just took it and we were like, yeah, this is what we have to do now because this is what the terrorists are doing. And it was a way I remember even hearing people at school like, oh, thank God Bush is our press. Like Bush is strong and like, I mean, oh, I don't vote for Bush and I would, you know, like, <laughs> but like it was, yeah. it was an immediate turn of thinking that I think, you know, happened because of 9-11 and, and yeah, it's like persisting you know, persist today. You're right. Like this is the kind of, kind of what, um, this is our, our problem, but, um, <laughs> it's been growing ever since nine yes. eleven. because like, that, I think that we may have some listeners too young to remember the hyper patriotism that happened right after nine 11, where if you didn't love the military, if yep. you didn't love the police, you were un-American. Mm-hmm. Like you were the worst person ever. If you ever criticized the military or the police, and that's still going on today on some level. Yeah. Yeah. This was interesting stuff. And, um, and a good parallel to kind of what this, I think, this movie is um, is saying about about nationalism and its mm-hmm. um, critique of it. go back to our regularly scheduled programming where we pick a random movie at the end of each episode doesn't mean that we can go off topic at some point but this time is a random movie episode and so i have picked the 2000 film american psycho it is something that i've picked and mm-hmm. it's also minority voices because i believe the director was a woman. Is a woman, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to read for, and the, I've seen this because this is my pick, but Brandon. I have never seen you've it. Never seen yeah. this. Okay, great. So, so, so here is the description of American Seiko. A wealthy New York City investment banking executive, Patrick Bateman, hides his alternate. Uh, hides his alternate psychopathic ego from his co-workers and friends as he delves deeper into his violent hedonistic fantasies. I think this movie will have a lot to say about maybe antisocial personality disorder. It probably will. Lots but of let trauma. Me, let me just point out, we have the guy that played Batman is now playing a rich white man that. who ignores the law exactly. to punish people he doesn't like. So, I was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was actually just going to make that that parallel. Um, I have seen, I just, um, this book was originally written by Brett Easton Ellis. And mm-hmm. Brett Easton Ellis, I don't, have you read any of his books? I don't believe so. Okay. No. I loved him. I used to, I read all of his book or read, you know, all of, all of these books. A lot of the books have been turned into movies. Less than zero is one of them. Um, and um, he's actually like, I didn't, you know, realize it at that time, but Brett Easton Ellis is actually kind of a piece of shit. So, um, so, so yeah, we're going to unfortunately give some, uh, give some airtime to a piece of shit. And um, and we can talk more about who he is and and why why he is a piece of shit later in the episode. I mean, I I I, I this is where Brandon. It's hard for me. Like something that <laughs> I you know 
grew up liking and I've read all of it and this guy turned out to be a piece of shit and uh-huh. um and do we still watch the movie? Do I still do? I don't know. Like this is um, I'm sorry if I'm going to make um, that's, that's a this hard uncomfortable topic. for you. Yeah. Um I just know that he has said a lot of bad things. Um I think he's he's gay. But he's very um, conservative and maybe racist is what it is. So, yeah, I could be wrong. Um, I'm sure we'll have some stuff to talk talk, about. We can can talk about this, but I in in no way um, endorse the horrible shit that he said in the past. Um, Brett Easton Ellis, even though I have read all of his books. So rules of attraction is the other one that I was thinking of. (laughs) Okay. Okay, there we go. His books are pretty violent and gory and 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 okay so just as a disclaimer when you're gonna see this movie (laughs) it's yeah like rated rx or something like you know so just a (laughs) disclaimer for everybody don't watch it with um, yeah don't 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 watch it with isaac maybe i don't know if he watches that shit now he might. How old I don't do know. they start watching really horrible things? Just well, he's 18, so I can't oh, stop him. He from actually. Okay, then never mind. Yeah, so, I'm sorry. I'm um, still thinking he's 16 for some reason. I have um, no idea. Okay. Never mind. He yeah. can watch whatever he wants. What am I talking he about? He can. So, okay. Um, okay, so that's what we're watching American Psycho 2000 film. So now All that right. we've we know this, Brandon, would you like to take us away? Sure. So we are Peculiar Picture Show, a podcast that talks about movies, maladies, and mental health. You can find us online at peculiarpicture.show. That's our website. You can find information there on the podcast. You can stream all episodes, links to our social media profiles, um, and a press kit if you want. Um, additionally, I write my, mov- my own movie reviews at brandontalksmovies.com, and I have some of my mental health writing at monsteronmyback.pub. So that's all we got, and I'll talk to you later. See you next time.